I was the city editor at the Washington Post when September 11th happened and, you know, the plane crashed into the Pentagon. Um, I was the city editor with the anthrax scare. I was in Washington when the uh, Washington, D.C. sniper was picking off people. Nothing, nothing can compare to what happened, you know, beginning May and June when you had two enormous and challenging news events happening at the same time. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today is the story of how a young boy from Colombia immigrated to America when he was seven without speaking any English, and how decades later, he has become one of Philly's most seasoned journalists and would go on to become the editor and vice president of the Philadelphia Inquirer. The story of Gabriel Escobar is now on Philly Who. My name is Gabriel Escobar, and I'm the editor and vice president of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Gabriel, however, isn't a Philly native. In fact, he isn't even a native of the U.S. He was born in Colombia. My father was a lawyer. My mother was a homemaker. My grandfather on one side was a doctor and a politician, and on the other side, a dentist and also a politician. So professional family with roots going back many, many centuries, actually, in Colombia. And my mother married young. She was 19. My father was already an attorney. And her life's course was set. You know, a woman of her class and stature at that time essentially went to high school and then was prepared to run households. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, in Colombia at that time, this has changed, obviously. She was going to essentially raise a family. And then my father was killed in a car accident in 1959 when I was two and a half. And then my my mother's life, and of course ours, was dramatically altered from that point. At that time, it would have been expected that Gabriel's mother would take the kids and go to live with either her parent or her in-laws. But there was a third choice. A third choice that was almost unheard of for a woman like Gabriel's mother during that time. My mother, you know, I don't think she knew at the time, but, you know, she clearly had an independent streak and she took the riskiest route. Her sister had decided to go to New York and work as a, an au pair and had been there for a year. And my mother decided that that's what she should do, move. And um, that's what we did. I think if she had ever stopped to think about the hurdles and sort of the permanent implications of this, she would never have done it. But, mm. you know, like a lot of, this is a very immigrant trait that it takes courage to do this. That courage neutralizes, I think, this is my own sense, sure. of your ability to assess risk. Essentially, you just decide that you're going to do this. It takes tremendous courage to do it, to yeah. uproot yourself and leave everything that is familiar behind to go to a place that you don't know. Yeah. And so you were, what, seven years old when you moved to the States? Yes, I was just shy by five days of wow. turning eight. 
I remember um, sitting in the backseat of my grandfather's Ford. He had a black Ford from the probably early 50s. And I remember looking out the window at where they lived, uh, my grandparents, and asking myself, I wonder when I will see this again. After two flights, Gabriel, his mother, and his two brothers landed in New York City. My mother had arranged for temporary housing in Forest Hills, which was new and different. And I remember this because Forest Hills, this is a neighborhood in Queens, a pretty well-off neighborhood, actually, was mostly apartment buildings. And I had never seen anything like that. So it was, you know, blocks and blocks Mm. of, you know, I think six or seven story apartment buildings with pocket parks, which were sort of novel. We were there for only a handful of months. And then the aim had been to rent the house somewhere. And I I don't know what research was done um, (laughs) to determine where, but I suspect it was because Somebody knew somebody. This is the other immigrant story. You you know, you you have to find people who are your shepherds and guides. And if they don't do it, you know, they can point you in the direction of somebody who might. Uh, so I think we ended up meeting this very interesting Cuban guy who had left Cuba in 1959 at the beginning of the revolution mm. and settled in in New York. And he had a house that he was renting. And that's how we ended up on 77th Street in Jackson Heights. It was his house. Did you speak any English when you arrived? We didn't speak a single word of English. My mother didn't, and my brother, my older brother didn't. We had a younger brother, and uh, he was four, and, um, and, and he didn't speak any English either. So no, none. But we arrived in, at the end of July, July 27th, I think. And then come September, so how many weeks? Six, seven weeks? We were enrolled in PS69, which is the local elementary school. Um, I have vague recollections of that, and I think it's because of the shock of the experience. There are two that stand out. The first, which is embarrassing to this day, is that I obviously didn't know how to communicate that I needed to go to the bathroom. Oh, no. So I had an accident, yeah. and that I remember that very clearly. And then the other, and I think this was early on, was a spelling test. And I remember the blank sheet being in front of me, the teacher up there saying words, and then everybody writing, and then I couldn't. This didn't last long. Eventually, he and his family learned English and were thriving. I became a passionate reader, and I, you know we had always gone to to the library. It was one of the things we did as little kids. The three of us would all go on Saturday to the local branch of the library and um, and take out books. You were limited to 10 and we would each take 10. Wow. And uh, and we would do it. And then the next Saturday we'd go back, turn in the 10. And, would you and, read all 10 in, in a week? Well, you know, it depended, or start right? <laughs> um, my, my, uh, my younger brother, who was three years younger than I am. This is a family joke because he would always take out the same Curious George book and everyone <laughs> remembers that. You know, my older brother was very into sports biographies written for kids. And I read I, I read stories. I mean, I was just a fiction a reader and I read a lot. Eventually, he would get a job. This job, though he didn't know it at the time, would be an omen for things to come. So back then, 
It was the dying days of the afternoon newspaper. Wow. TV uh, news, uh, the six o'clock news was slowly killing the afternoon newspaper. There was one in Queens called the Long Island Press. And uh, the workforce was entirely kids, you know, 12 to 14, 15. Mm -hmm. And um, you would go to a, a central drop-off place with your bikes or your shopping cart. It depended on how big your brat was, actually. You would bundle the papers, a rubber band. Um, you would put them either, you know, in your Stingray handlebars in this special bag that uh, they gave you or you did it in a shopping cart, and then you went the route and you threw the papers, literally threw the papers. Mm -hmm. So my, my older brother and I actually ended up partnering and merging several routes together, and, and uh, it was a pretty good business. Yeah. It was all after school, and we could do the whole route in you know a little over an hour yeah. by being really deliberate about the route and where we went first. So... Gabriel spent his childhood in Queens reading and delivering newspapers. In hindsight, his path seems like it should have been clear. But when it came time to go to college, Gabriel didn't really know what he wanted to study. I figured I liked reading. I liked writing. So I should try to think of something along those lines. Um, I went to Queens College, which is commuter school. And then back then... The City University of New York system, which is Queens College was part of that, had only one requirement to graduate, and that's that you take English 101. There was no other requirement, course requirement. So I ended up after four years, you know, exhausting almost all English courses and contemporary literature courses and, and writing courses. I took nothing else, <laughs> nothing in the hard sciences, and that was a blessing. Yeah. Why? Because I was lousy at it. <laughs> but you enjoyed writing. Yes, yes, yes. I always liked writing. And, you know, I, especially in college, it was more, more a focus on poetry. Very mediocre poetry, by the way, in hindsight. But, but that's what I did. I wrote poetry. It turns out writing mediocre poetry doesn't exactly pay the bills. So throughout the time he was in school, Gabriel was also working at a place where he had always loved to spend time. A bunch of us from Jackson Heights, all classmates, when we were in high school, went to get jobs. And we all went to the library on 42nd Street and applied. And four of us got jobs hmm. in different places in the library system. I came very close to being a librarian. I had been at the library for nine years. Wow. Um, <laughs> including full-time for, for a bunch of years after I graduated from college. And I loved the job. And I loved the library. And to this day, I actually credit it with my education. Wow. The head of the research division asked me if I was interested in pursuing a degree in library sciences. So it's in master's. And they offered to pay for it at Columbia University. And then that, that presented a really stark choice for me. It was the first big fork, in fact, mm. where I could have continued doing a job that I really loved, but that I had been doing for nine years, or strike out and do something else. Mm. And I decided that I couldn't really see myself spending another 40 years in the same place without trying something different. So that's where journalism came in. And it was just, you know, the choice of not becoming a librarian 
And then I just figured I can write. I know I can write. If there's a profession where writing matters, aside from the creative artsy type, right. it's journalism. So maybe I'll do that. So I applied. Uh, this was very late in, in the application calendar. And I applied to just two places for a master's program, NYU and uh, the University of Maryland. NYU rejected me. Maryland accepted me. And I went there for a master's. So he went to Maryland to pursue his graduate degree in journalism. But even though he was an avid reader and writer, he soon realized that journalism was going to be a whole different ballgame. You know, I was ill-prepared because I had not taken a single journalism course as an undergraduate. And the shift from knowing really well the job that you were asked to perform, which was my library career, mm to doing something where you are not at all grounded and not at all good, actually, hmm. is pretty dramatic. And it took a while to get used to that. And, and in fact, I didn't get used to it in, in the graduate program. Yeah. So I graduated with a master's degree without ever having published anything. It was a complete <laughs> failure. So Gabriel did what lots of young people who are unsure about their career do. I went back to Columbia, I traveled. For a while, I came back to New York. I taught Spanish for a very brief period. And then there was an old Jackson Heights PS69 connection that landed me my first job without that. I don't know what would happen, by the way. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, one of my friends from Jackson Heights who put me in touch with another friend from school and said he was just hired to run a weekly newspaper also in Queens. Hmm. And so I called them. And he gave me a, a test. He said, go cover this event. And it was an anti-war protest. And I went, I sat in the back of the auditorium, did not talk to a single person, took careful notes, then went home. And when it came time to writing it, I looked at the New York Times. We always had the Times in the house. And I looked at a couple of news stories. And then I said, okay, that's how you do it. <laughs> and then I wrote out the story longhand. And then I typed it and I delivered that to the Queen's Tribune. And based on that, I got the job. How did you learn how to actually cover a story, right? So we heard about where you kind of sat in the back and <laughs> just like mirrored it off of a New York Times story. But how did you actually discover how to actually do it? Well, the first important lesson, and this is going to sound overly simplistic to journalists, is you have to go. <laughs> you actually have to go, you have to be there, and you have to talk to people. It is not something that if you do it you know, too quickly, you will lose out on things. So that is, and it's some of the skills that I described before, it is imperative that you go and be wherever it is that the story is. You have to be there, and then you have to, to the extent possible, and there are all kinds of limitations, right? Journalism is about managing limitations. You have to talk to as many people as possible. Why is it so important to be there? Otherwise, it's a flat narrative. It's an accumulation of facts that are gathered without the fabric of real life attached to them. Mm. It's clinical. It's impersonal. It's cold. And it's 
often not accurate. Eventually, Gabriel learned how to weave multidimensional personal stories, and his experience grew to include multiple newspapers across multiple states. I worked at that Queen's newspaper for a little under two years. Then I worked for a daily in northern New Jersey for like a year and a half. And then I went to the state paper in Connecticut. I had, you know, three or four years in me. And I wanted to work at a tabloid. And I didn't want to go back to New York. So he came to Philadelphia to work at the Daily News. We should note that today, the Inquirer and the Daily News have actually merged into a single newsroom. But when Gabriel first came to Philadelphia, they were entirely different entities. The Daily News was, you know, an interesting tabloid. So I came here for the interview. I mean, I remember very well going to the old building on Broad Street. I got the interview and, you know, I started, you know, that summer, I think, yeah. in 1988. Philly in 1988, in some ways, is the Philly you know, of 2021, which is one of it, the city's virtues, by the way. It's also vastly different mm. in many ways. Um, the landscape is completely different. It was not quite the nadir for the city. That would come a little later uh, with the fiscal challenges. Mm. But it was a very challenged city in, in many other ways. Um, crime was, was significant. Um, schools back then, just like today, were challenged in the best ways. It was a, a working class city with a hard work ethic. And then the other thing that, that struck me is it was different in that it was a clearly um, a city of neighborhoods. And that term is used liberally in other places. I had not seen a city that was that distinct. It was essentially a kind of city-state where the neighborhoods were their own place with their own identity and, and very different from one another. He visited a lot of these neighborhoods and what he saw really surprised him. I was sent to one of the river wards in um, Northeast Philly. And I came back that night and I called my older brother and I said, I was in this part of Philadelphia where all I saw was really poor white people. And it's because in Queens, we, you know, I mean, Queens obviously had poverty, but not pockets of that level of poverty. And I had never seen that. Hmm. The other one, I was at the scene of a shooting in, I think this was West Philadelphia. And it was the summer and it was very hot. And um, at one point, this van came down the street. It was a, the kind of street you would see in, in, in West Philly sort of narrow cars on both sides. So the van comes in, so parks in the middle, two city workers come out and they open the back of the van and they start giving out lunch. And it was white bread, cheese sandwich hmm. and small containers of orange drink. And uh, I continued watching this sort of the scene here. And then when I was done talking to the people about the shooting, I walked to the car and uh, the sandwiches were all over the street and no one had had the juices either. And that was such a stark revelation for me because I realized that whatever it took to create 
you know, this system had sort of worked, but really failed, right? First of all, the sandwiches seemed unusually small to me. And they were like white bread with cheese and nothing else. I mean, and then the other thing wasn't even real orange juice. It was yeah. orange drink. Yeah, yeah. So um, I reflect on that, you know, when when I think about poverty and sort of the the efforts that governments implement to you know, to help address what is a yeah. a systemic social policy challenge that remains, you know, part of every city, Philadelphia included. Gabe was in Philadelphia for two years before moving to the Washington Post. This was of a different scale, uh, the Washington Post, because of the size of the organization. Being part of a really, really big newsroom being surrounded by people with lots of talent, more editing resources than I had been accustomed to. Mm. All of that, I think, accelerated my growth. And I covered crime those first two years. And, and those days, in terms of violence, are and still the worst mm. in Washington. Covering crime during that time required thick skin, and it took a huge mental and emotional toll. One way that I managed, because I, I wouldn't draw broad conclusions, is uh, reporting with compassion. Uh, when you're dealing with people who are, have just experienced, you know, a tragedy of unbelievable dimensions, listening and not being sort of the cold reporter, what happened kind of thing, I found that to be really, really helpful. It's actually hard to do in the long term because at some level you are trying to either understand the pain that the person is going through, and I'm limiting this to that kind of reporting, or there's some kind of emotional transfer that takes place where you, you try to understand the dimensions of the tragedy in front of mm. you. And over time, that could take its toll. And actually, it, it did to me, and I didn't realize it until many years later. And I've talked to other reporters who have done this, including some who have decided, and this is the healthy choice, not to do it anymore. Hmm. And there is sort of a common, almost common experience there. Can you tell me more about what that is? In my case, it's a, it's a very specific story. Um, so it would have been early in my time at the Washington Post, and there had been a murder overnight, and uh, the, the victim was a teenager. It was in the summer, and uh, I got to know um, parts of Washington really, really well, because one thing that I had to do as part of my job was go to almost every murder. So, I, so I, I knew the neighborhoods, and one of the many uh, issues with that housing project was where it was. It was next to a kind of fetid creek that, you know, just reeked. The whole place smelled, not because of anything in the housing project itself, but because there had some kind of sewage it leaking into the this fetid pool. Um, so it was, you know, short brick buildings. And then I went to look, to talk to the family. And I knocked on the door, and the, um, the door opened, and it was the two siblings of the dead boy. And they were there by themselves. Hmm. So I asked for their mother, and then the older girl, it was a girl and a boy, 
said she's at the morgue. And then I said, well, I'm here because of your brother. And then she said, do you want to see pictures of him? And I couldn't say no. Um, so I said, sure. And uh, they brought out the album, the family album, and then went through it and showed me, you know, this is him, this is his birthday. And I just found that unbelievably sad. So then, you know, I talked to them briefly. I didn't take notes because yeah, I, the parents weren't there. So the door closed and uh, I sort of tried to compose myself and I looked up and the next level of the housing complex was right above me. And I looked up, this unit was vacant and there was a woman standing in the window frame uh, wearing only a bra. And this was a vacant house. And we locked eyes and I, till I couldn't, it made no sense. Um, I found out later that it was, you know, a house where drug dealers, you know, essentially sold. So maybe she was a drug addict, I don't know. Uh, but I walked away thinking, this was hell. The children are in hell. <laughs> um, whatever's happening in that house is hell. This housing project, where it is, is hell. At the Washington Post, Gabe eventually became a city editor and then the Latin American Bureau chief. It was during this time that he cut his teeth as a newsroom leader, learning a lot about editor-reporter dynamics along the way. So reporters would say that their job is far more important than an editor, and an editor would say that reporters couldn't be what they are unless they had good editing, right? So yeah. there's going to be a difference between the two. And the differences are nuanced. You know, from my experience, the best editors have been really good reporters. It's not exclusive. It's not a requirement from my personal experience. It takes a really, really good reporter to be a really, really good editor. Editors guide and open eyes to the possibility. Reporters are the actors in the play. They have to do the work of gathering the information. At its best, it's it's an elegant dance and collaboration. At its worst, when the relationships don't work, it doesn't produce the best journalism. Mm. Gabe was at the Washington Post for about 15 years, but he just couldn't stay away from Philly. So in 2007, he returned to serve as the Inquirer's Metro editor. This particular time in his career was marked by change, both in Philadelphia and at the newspaper itself. The city had gone through a kind of rebirth. It was still sort of challenged. You know, some of the fiscal challenges had been addressed. Mayor Nutter had just been elected. So, you know, there was, there was an energy and a dynamism to the city. Some of the challenges that existed the first time I had been to Philadelphia was still here. Mm -hmm. The city, as I said before, had, had physically changed. Yeah. Uh, the landscape itself was different. Had the energy of the city changed at all? The vibrancy of, of neighborhoods sort of remained. Um, there are significant forces that alter that. Neighborhoods disappear, right? I mean, yeah. there's gentrification, all kinds of things. So they're, not to minimize, right. you know, the impacts of all that. But, you know, the thing people sort of say about Philly and its, its character and its, um, you know, its attitude. I mean, all of that, you know, sort of 
was still there. It yeah. was the, sort of a kind of Philly currency, I think. The city was not the only thing that was changing. The journalism industry itself was going through a time of deep uncertainty as they reckoned with the rising prominence of the internet and social media. The one thread through that period is the, the peril that journalism found itself in. So as a business, the industry had been challenged before. And when you study sort of the root causes, you can see it all the way back even to the 60s, right? The declining readership in newspapers. Those years, from the moment I arrived here in 2007, the crisis locally and for the Inquirer in particular, mm. and actually for many, almost all, newspapers escalated significantly. Yeah. Combination of the recession in 2008, the industry decline in advertising and circulation, it presented enormous challenges for journalists actually in the field working in shrinking numbers. Yeah. Uh, and then for managers and for business executives who were finding themselves in a situation where what you thought you needed to do really good journalism was compromised by a philosophy and maybe on the business side, a need to cut. That hmm. defined it. And then, um, and you know, those were the, in some ways, the dark ages wow. uh, for the Inquirer because of all those challenges, you know, series of owners, warring owners, bankruptcy, uh, hedge fund owners, and a constantly shrinking newsroom. What was your outlook on all this as you saw not only the paper going through such tumult, but the industry itself? You know, you've been in the industry for ages. How are you seeing all this happening around you? I, you know, I believe in the importance of journalism. I believe in the importance of journalists. I think reporting, particularly at the local level, where there are fewer eyes, mm. you, you need to have journalists. You need to have independent reporting, and you need to do that well. Yeah. Anything that challenges that, that potentially compromises your ability to do so, is a great hazard mm. with real costs. Yeah. So the Inquirer and the Daily News have, have always had really talented professional journalists. There were many, many years when this was not only a successful business model, because journalism for many, many decades was incredibly successful financially, but it was also incredibly successful journalistically. And people dedicated their lives to reporting in Philadelphia and for these institutions. And for those who had done so, and we're still here, and many were, when this the dark ages began, it was incredibly difficult, mm -hmm. painful, demoralizing, challenging. To the credit of, of those journalists, they continued to do really good journalism, despite, you know, this almost oppressive yeah. situation. That's not to say that people didn't leave because people left, sometimes not of their own volition, but the ones who remained were professional journalists who every day set out to do yeah. the work of a journalist. And why didn't you leave? You know, by then I was an editor and part of senior management 
I had moved my family to Philadelphia and my, all my kids were in elementary school. And every, every calculation about what to do has to be taken in the broader sort of family context. This is a great area for people to grow up in. So um, the family did uproot and um, we went to Texas and we were only there for a year and then came back. When he returned, he was a part of senior management at The Inquirer, eventually working his way up to be the managing editor, one of the top positions in the newsroom. The dark ages were becoming brighter as the journalism industry began adapting to the internet boom. But then 2020 happened. And that year turned out to be something that even Gabe's wealth of experience couldn't prepare him for. So I have... I've been involved in, in big stories before. I was the city editor at the Washington Post when September 11th happened and, you know, the plane crashed into the Pentagon. I was the city editor with the anthrax scare. Um, I was in Washington when the uh, Washington, D.C. sniper was picking off people over, what, two months of horrific tension. Nothing, regardless of that scale, Nothing, nothing can compare to what happened, you know, beginning May and June when you had two enormous and challenging news events happening at the same time. The first of these challenging events was, of course, COVID. I've been in enough professional newsrooms where I know that when something big and important happens, journalists respond. Editors and reporters photographers, graphic artists, people respond. This is what they are trained to do. And in some ways, that's exactly what happened, even though this was a challenge of enormous scale. The transition from newsroom, physical newsroom, to a remote workspace should have been far more disruptive than it actually was. And I think the reason for that is because people were on mission. And this is to the great credit, and I wish people outside of journalism would understand that. Those were hazardous conditions for journalists, particularly the reporters and photographers who were out on the street. They all performed their job, and they did it with great dedication and, and great valor. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing. It's because people knew that this was, in some ways, the largest story of their lives. And one, unlike other crises, because there are always crises and there are always big stories, this was a story without end. Mm. You couldn't say in three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. This was the way that we would be working going forward for a period of time that no one could define. The journalists at The Inquirer made the transition as easy as it could possibly be. However, there were still issues that needed to be addressed. A bigger challenge, and one that we didn't, we frankly didn't meet early on, was trying to figure out how to protect journalists. Mm. I mean, getting masks, you know, trying to understand this menace that was out there in the air, if you remember, it wasn't that long ago, but if you you know, the hand washing and, you know, I mean, right. all of that. And, and now you know that, well, no, it doesn't quite transmit that way. But in those early days, 
everything was a threat, everything was a menace, and reporters still had to figure out how to get the information, how to convey the scale and the uh, dimensions of this story. Yeah. And it's a remarkable achievement yeah. on the part of the people who did the work. Managers are, you know, we, we help. Yeah. But I think it would be a gross exaggeration to say that, you know, the management responsibilities in light of the physical challenges and dangers were anywhere near what the reporters and the yeah. photographers on the ground face. What was your major worry and concern during this period? The safety of the people who were doing the work. I mean, it really was. The journalism was going to happen and it was going to be done well because, again, this is a professional newsroom with highly experienced people right. who were committed to it. If anything, in that moment, that's going to be the least of the worries because you know these folks right. are going to recognize this as right. their time to do the job. And I imagine for you, it was just, oh gosh, I hope they don't <laughs> hurt themselves. Right, <laughs> right. And then, you know, just, you know, managing the day-to-day -day, and in some cases the hour-to-hour, -hour, you know, making sure that, you know, editors had what they needed, that we were being as ambitious and as creative in telling the many dimensions of this story. Eventually, the summer of 2020 arrived. The world was learning more about the coronavirus, and the city was finally beginning to settle into the new normal. Then, George Floyd was murdered. Thousands of protesters took to the streets in response, and while the vast majority of these protesters were peaceful, clashes with police and the sheer numbers of justifiably angry people created an incredibly unstable environment. You know, reporters were incredibly courageous covering COVID, being in the middle of often tense and dangerous protests at a scale I had not seen. I did not cover any wars in the Middle East. I covered some skirmishes in Latin America, but I think even the people who, who were frontline reporters in wars in Afghanistan mm. and in Iraq was sort of shocked at the level of danger in city streets, and Philadelphia was just one city where this happened. You know, when you went overseas, you were not only trained, I mean, you had to take courses on protecting yourself if you were going to Iraq and Iran. You were fully equipped. Mm. I mean, fully equipped. You stood next to a, you know, a soldier and nobody could tell the difference because you were wearing exactly the same thing and the same level of protection. Mm. You know, trying to figure out how to protect, you know, journalists, do we buy bulletproof vests, you know, what kind of goggles, hmm. you know, what kind of masks, all in short supply, all hard to get, you know, providing guidance to reporters so that they could do the work but not put themselves in peril. Yeah, those were very challenging times. Those challenging times were made even more challenging by a giant mistake the Inquirer made. We published the racist headline, and it was there for everybody to see. We won't repeat the headline here, but it was wildly tone-deaf, and it didn't even particularly represent the article it was published with. Consequently, the response the paper received after it was published was, well, about what you'd expect. The judgment was harsh, and deservedly so. So internally, not surprisingly, there was anger and hmm. mistrust. How could this happen? What does that say of us? How do we address? What do we need to do? You know, all those 
questions were rightly asked. Apologies, and we apologize, are only going to get you so far. This is one instance where I'm sorry is hollow unless concrete things happen. And uh, examining what we do as journalists of the Philadelphia Inquirer and how we do it is one positive consequence of hmm. all this, is that we are asking ourselves those questions. And I, mainly because, you know, there are many people at the, the Inquirer, professional journalists who are looking very carefully at what we do and dedicating a lot of time and talent and thought and deliberation to examine practices and policies with an eye towards self-improvement. Yeah. And, you know, I can point to some things that have concretely changed the way we do things. But until, you know, this is clear in our journalism, and as importantly, that people know that, you know, our journalism, you know, has changed in some critical areas, until that happens, the apology might still be hollow. Mm. I think what, what we've done, and this is the collective we in the newsroom, and the credit goes to the staff, let me just make that clear, is that we have embarked on a process where we collectively examine and then change. Yeah. And that conversation and the recommendations and the policies that come from that are empowered because there's consensus and there's creative thinking behind that consensus. Yeah. You know, this is one of those situations when, you know, some top-down sermon from the mount on what you need to do and here are the commandments wouldn't be nearly as effective. Yeah. And I think the fact that it, the process had started and, you know, that I was named an editor and essentially inherited this, you know, made that made that much easier. Yeah. I think uh, I can tie it to what I said earlier. I really believe in the importance of the journalistic mission and 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 so making sure that we are as committed to that mission and we're doing the work every day that lives up to the highest aspirations is essentially what we try to do every day. As a direct result of publishing the headline, the top editor at the Inquirer at the time resigned. This led to a months-long search for a new top editor, which ultimately ended in Gabriel taking the role in November 2020. One year later, he is still building his legacy as editor and vice president of the paper. And as he does so, the magnitude of the role isn't lost on him. The influence that his predecessors in Philly and in other cities have had remains on the back of his mind. I've worked with uh, very talented editors of news organizations, Ben Bradley being one of them. And I always held, you know, the editor with a sense of awe, actually. When Ben Bradley would walk through the newsroom, it was almost like people stopped. <laughs> uh, he had, you know, he was a very charismatic person in addition to being a great journalist. But he had, and he earned this, he had this sort of like aura about him. His successor, Len Downey, was an incredibly talented, dedicated uh, journalist who did terrific work at the Washington Post. And I modeled part of what I do on him because he was so excellent at the day-to-day -day management. And then there've been a bunch of others, including Bill Marimo here and uh, Steve Call, who was the managing editor at, at the Washington Post. 
So, you know, to be in essentially in the chair that some of these people occupied is, is actually both an honor and a little daunting, yeah. uh, to say the least. Yeah. What excites you most about Philadelphia today? Philadelphia is a great American city with a great history. It's a challenged place, but it's also a place that is incredibly dynamic. And it's its own place. I think it is different from other American cities. Part of it is, is the history. We were once the most important city in the United States. Even hardcore Philadelphians would probably agree that that is not a title that can mm. be conferred, right? <laughs> um, but managing that, you were once this and now you are something else, is part of the fabric of the mm. character of Philadelphia. Mm. It has retained its own identity, even though there are two strong poles, north and south, pulling them. Uh, New York to the north and Washington to the south. You can't confuse Philadelphia for either of those places. And that's a very good thing. Yeah. Finally, if you can get one message to every single Philadelphian, one thing that they can hear or read or see and truly ponder, could be a text, billboard, plane in the sky, whatever. What would that message be? I'm going to address it to people who are skeptical of journalism and people who are confused, maybe alarmed by the label of fake news. There is a professional class of journalists. They aspire to tell really good stories. They focus on being accurate and on being fair. It is really important in this age to recognize the value of journalism and that kind of journalism in particular. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was written by Catherine Nails and produced by me and Catherine Nails with post-production by Jeremy Bishop and a very special thanks to Josh Koppelman and, of course, Gabriel Escobar. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Thank you so much. 